0: Uh, we are going to conclude our series on the Beatitudes. So first, I want to say, if you missed any of the sermons leading up to this point, I really encourage you to go online and watch those. Uh, Pastor Nate has done a fantastic job unpacking the Beatitudes for us, um, and you are missing out if you missed any of those. So um, as we've seen so far, what the Beatitudes are, is they are a series of statements from Jesus describing the kind of life that is blessed by God. Essentially what he's doing here is he's taking the world system and turning it on its head and saying, this is how the kingdom of heaven operates. And then these final two Beatitudes that we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see blessed are the peacemakers and blessed are the persecuted. Now you could summarize these two by saying, blessed are those who demonstrate God's attitude. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, My friend's grandfather passed away last week and I saw a post written by his wife and this is how she described uh, my friend's grandfather. She said, I remember him as a peacemaker, healing our church where there had been much strife and backbiting. And when I read that, that stood out to me in a really profound way, Um, partly because I was preparing for this, Uh, um, but also because you don't hear people described that way very often. I mean, think about it. How many people in your life would you describe as a peacemaker? I thought it was really, really profound. Um, it's sadly rare in our world today for for someone to even be at peace themselves, much less to be a peacemaker and to be known as such by those around them. Um, no matter where you look in our world today, you're going to see an absence of peace. Quick, easy example. Since the birth of our nation in 1776, Uh, The USA has been involved in some form of war or conflict, foreign or domestic, for 230 years. So roughly about 17 years of peace. Now, even when we say that word peace, we know it's not true biblical peace, right? I once heard it said that peace is a brief moment in history where everyone stops to reload. So just because we've ceased fire doesn't mean we're at peace but we live in a day where people are more divided than ever. We're divided racially, we're divided politically, ethically, religiously, you name it, somebody somewhere is fighting about it. And that's, that's the world we're all living in. And this world desperately needs, desperately needs for Christians to be peacemakers. Desperately needs Christians who will demonstrate God's attitude through peacemaking. My main point this morning, as we look at Matthew 5, is that blessed are those who demonstrate God's attitude by making peace, even when they are persecuted. Let's pray before we continue. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for all of your uh, people that are here today. Lord, I pray that uh, as we look in your word, God, your Holy Spirit would convict us, would guide us into all truth. Lord, help me to communicate with clarity, accuracy, and your power. Lord, guard me from error and guard those in the room from error as well. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So our first point this morning we see in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So the first question we need to ask ourselves today is, what is a peacemaker? What does it mean to be a peacemaker? And I want to suggest to you today that the primary way that we should understand what it means to be a peacemaker is to understand the way that God himself is a peacemaker. Colossians chapter one says this, for in him, speaking of Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, same word in a different form from our, uh, Matthew five text by the blood of his cross. So ever since the fall of man, back in Genesis chapter three, God and natural man, peace was broken. It, the Bible says even the earth itself was cursed and then hostility, strife, and enmity became the natural order of our world. And so we see throughout the scriptures that since then, our sovereign God has been working actively to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth back to himself. And how is he doing that? Colossians 1 tells us by the blood of his cross. Make no mistake, church, in our natural state, apart from Christ, we are sinners and we are enemies of God. Ephesians 2 tells us we were by nature children of wrath. Sons of disobedience. And this is the natural state of mankind apart from Christ. But the good news is Romans chapter five tells us, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Isn't that incredible? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, God chose reconciliation with us. Now, we don't deserve peace with God and we cannot earn peace with God, but he has offered it to us freely. It's freely given to us. God has not only made peace with us, but he is calling us to be peacemakers as well. Matthew 5, uh, 9 says, peacemakers shall be called sons of God. And The the sense in which we are called sons of God is that we are doing our father's work. We're doing our father's work while demonstrating his attitude. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, therefore, If anyone is in christ he is a new creation the old is passed away behold the new has come all this is from god who through christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in christ god was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation therefore we are ambassadors for christ god making his appeal through us we implore you on behalf of christ be reconciled to God. So God not only reconciles us, but he entrusts to us the message of reconciliation. This means that we are his ambassadors. Now an ambassador by definition is somebody that's sent from their country to a foreign country to be a representative. And so uh, as Philippians three tells us, when we are believers in Christ, we are citizens of heaven. This world's not our home. We're sojourners, we're exiles, we're just passing through. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and we have been sent into this foreign land to be ambassadors, to be a representative of God in the earth. And we, uh, we do this by demonstrating God's attitude to those around us. We demonstrate God's attitude by being peacemakers. Last week, Pastor Nate said, forgiven people, forgive people. So in the same way, I wanna say to you this morning, reconciled people, reconcile people. When we proclaim the gospel, when we share our faith, when we implore others to be reconciled to God, we are are fulfilling this ministry of reconciliation. We're fulfilling our role as peacemakers. Think about it for a minute. If you're in the room and you are a Christian, you're at peace with God, someone at some point in your life fulfilled the ministry of reconciliation. And as I say that, I see I see heads nodding. As I say that, faces are probably coming to mind. Names are coming to mind. You're thinking about people that were influential that God used to reconcile you to himself. That is the kind of person that we are to strive to be for others. So because, because God has made peace with us and because we demonstrate his attitude toward others, we also strive to be peacemakers by bringing reconciliation to our human relationships. The necessary result of being at peace with God is that we strive to make peace with others. Let's say that again. It's important. The necessary result of being at peace with God is that we strive to be at peace with others. How could we not? Really? How could we not? God, God has made peace with us. He's reconciled with us. He called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We were rebellious enemies and he called us, he reconciled us. How could we not treat others the same way? So if you missed the last uh, last week's sermon specifically, I, w- I wanna encourage you to go watch it because Pastor Nate talked about the importance of repentance and forgiveness in our relationships. And that is absolutely vital to peacemaking in our relationships, absolutely vital. I'm not gonna re-preach his sermon this morning, but you need to go listen to it if you missed it. Being a peacemaker with others, it requires that we be people of good Christian character. James three tells us this, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and sincere and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So what's James doing here? First, he describes the way of the world, jealousy, selfish, ambition, disorder, vile practice. And then he contrasts that with what he's calling the wisdom from above, which describes this paradigm that we're talking about of the way that the kingdom of heaven operates. It's pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, sincere. You hear some correlation there with the Beatitudes? Some of the same ideas, the same heart postures, the same characteristics that we've been talking about in this series. And when we look at the Beatitudes, there's a logical order to them. And what I mean by that is you have to be a person that lives in accordance with the first six in order to do seven and eight. In order to accomplish being a peacemaker, in order to accomplish a willingness to be persecuted, you have to be the kind of person that is living uh, in these first six. And James tells us that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So say it another way, our peacemaking is birthed out of righteousness, and then as a result, it produces more righteousness. This brings us to an important caveat this morning. We must not pursue peace at any price. We cannot pursue peace at the expense of righteousness, at the expense of holiness, at the expense of purity, or at the expense of truth. Thomas Watson put it this way when commenting on this passage. He said, we must not be so in love with the golden crown of peace as to pluck off the jewels of truth rather let peace go than truth. The martyrs would rather lose their lives than let go of truth. So I want to suggest to you this morning that peace made at the expense of truth, righteousness, purity, holiness, it's no peace at all. It's a false peace. We are not to seek false peace through being passive or avoiding issues. This is the difference between being a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. Peace. Keeping is willing to compromise in order to maintain a false sense of peace. Let me give you an example. I'm sure, this doesn't describe anybody in the room. Some of you, when your families get together, particularly extended family, there could be a little strife, a little conflict. So say you're you're going into Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever, and you say, All right, we're not talking about this, we're not talking about that, we're not talking about that. Let's just let's just grin and bear it and try to get through this peaceably, right? And so we're avoiding issues. There's a big elephant in the corner of the room that nobody's talking about because we're trying to keep the peace. But it's hard to be at peace with an elephant in the room, right? The author Lou Priolo put it this way. He said, a peacemaker is willing to endure the discomfort of a conflict in the hope of bringing about a peaceful resolution. Peace not only is the absence of conflict, but it is often the result of it. A peace lover is so afraid of conflict that he will avoid it at almost all costs. He is so concerned about keeping the peace with his fellow man that he is often willing to forfeit the peace of God that comes from standing up and suffering for the truth. He is essentially a coward at heart. A peacekeeper has made an idol of peace and has chosen to worship the idea of peace rather than the God of peace. Peace Peacemaking, on the other hand, it's not passive, but it's active. It doesn't run away from conflict, but it runs into conflict with the express purpose of bringing reconciliation, of making peace. So I wanna ask you this morning, what would that look like in your family? I'll give give you an example of what not to do. It's confession time. As a father, I often fail to be a peacemaker in my home because one of the things that gets me more irritated than anything else in the world is when I hear my children fight. When I hear my children bickering and screaming and I just instantly, my blood starts to boil. I'm sure none of you are are this carnal, but. And more often than not, my, my initial response is, you go over there, you go over there, get away from each other. I don't want to hear that bickering anymore. Is that peacemaking? No, that's just ceasing fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, coward, you're right. What would peacemaking look like in my situation? That would be, hey, you two are not reconciled right now. You're not at peace. We need to bring peace to this situation. You have destroyed the peace in our home, and we're going to work to restore it. Totally different approach. A lot harder. Takes a lot more time. what would that look like in your workplace? What would that look like with your neighbors that you don't get along with? What steps do you need to take to work towards reconciliation and make peace where it does not yet exist in your life? True peace comes only through reconciliation and reconciliation comes only through the gospel. So this raises an important question that we have to consider this morning. What about those who reject the gospel and refuse to pursue reconciliation. How are we to live at peace with those people? Apostle Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 12. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So in that statement there, there's two key phrases that stand out to me. If possible, It's not always possible. And so far as it depends on you, you can't control the thoughts or the beliefs or the actions of the people around you. Can you, who can you control you? That's right. You can control yourself. So as Christians, we have to ask ourselves when we find ourselves in the midst of a conflict, we have to say, am I doing everything I possibly can to be at peace in this situation? Is there any part of this conflict? That's the result of my sin. And if the answer to that is yes, and we have to do what Pastor Nate talked about last week. Repent, <laughs> repent, seek forgiveness, seek rec- reconciliation. As Christians, we ought to be known as those who go the extra mile to live peaceably with all, even our enemies. And this is how we demonstrate God's attitude to the world around us. The Apostle Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 12, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So how can we possibly live at peace with those around us, even our enemies? Romans 12 gives us three practical ways. First, we do not repay evil for evil, but we leave vengeance to the Lord. As Christians, we're not the kind of person that's constantly trying to get even. We're not trying to get revenge. We're leaving that to the Lord. He's the judge, let him sort it out. We do what is honorable, even when we are wronged. Even when we're wronged, we respond honorably. Here's a practical way to understand this. If a third party's looking at your conflict, is it crystal clear who's in the wrong? Because if you're responding honorably, when you're being wronged, it'll be very clear who's in the wrong. And third, we work for the good of others, even those who oppose us. The good of others is our, our motivation in every situation. He says in this way, we not only avoid being overcome by evil, but we overcome evil with good. Understand this. When we respond sinfully, when we allow someone to bring us down to that level, we're being overcome by evil. Don't allow yourself to be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. He says, by doing so, you will keep burning coals on his head. I love that. I can't help but laugh when I read that. This is a quotation from Proverbs 25. On the surface, it it sounds a little strange, but have you ever heard the phrase, kill them with kindness? I I, I think of Bugs Bunny. What does he do to Elmer Fudd to make him more mad than anything? Gives him a big, wet kiss, right? And so... This is a similar idea, but we have to make some really important distinctions here. Burning coals are often used biblically to represent the judgment of God. And so what he's saying is the, the idea of heaping burning coals on the head is we're recognizing that God is the judge and we're demonstrating faith in his justice. We are positioning ourselves for God's reward rather than God's wrath. And when a peacemaker is wronged, their heart posture is it genuinely desires the good of the other person? We desire to make peace with that person and ultimately for them to be reconciled and at peace with God. Now, unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't work that way, right? Sometimes that doesn't work. And our peacemaking efforts actually make the situation worse sometimes. Sometimes when we try to make peace, we're actually res- people respond with even greater persecution. And that brings us to our next uh, beatitude this morning and our final one. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So within this final beatitude are both a warning and a promise. Here's the warning. When you live righteously, you will be persecuted. Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said in John 15, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So as Christians, we should expect persecution on some level. We shouldn't go looking for it. We're not looking for a fight, but we shouldn't be surprised by it either. Now, keep in mind a a really important distinction here, that we're talking about persecution for what? Righteousness sake, okay? This beatitude does not say, blessed are those who are persecuted for being a jerk. It doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted for being a hypocrite. If the persecution that we are under is a result of our sin, there's no blessing in that. This is persecution for righteousness' sake. And oftentimes, we invite persecution on ourselves, not for righteousness, but the absence of righteousness in our lives. No blessing in that. 1 Peter chapter 2 says this, For this a, a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Suffering as a result of our own sin, it makes sense, right? Actions have consequences, we get that. But suffering for righteousness sake is counterintuitive. You read these Beatitudes, you're like, man, this person sounds awesome. Humble, gentle, meek, peacemaker. Why would anybody wanna persecute that kind of person? Jesus tells us in John chapter 3, he said, light has come into the world. He's speaking of himself there. But people loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. So know this, when you live righteously, when the light of Christ in your life is shining out into a dark world, you are exposing the evil deeds of people who love the darkness. And when that happens, people are going to respond in one of two ways. They're either going to repent or they're going to respond with hatred. Remember the story of Cain and Abel from Genesis chapter 4. Says this, the Lord looked on favor, looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. When the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Abel did nothing wrong to Cain. The only thing Abel did was do the right thing before God. That's it. And Cain was in a situation where he could either repent and do the right thing or respond with hatred. He chose hatred over repentance. Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. A.W. Pink commented, that it is a strong proof of human depravity that men's curses and Christ's blessings should meet on the same persons. Isn't that profound? And this persecution, it can take many forms. It could be physical, up to and including death. And we know that Jesus has that in mind. Why? Because verse 12, he said, for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What happened to the Old Testament prophets? They killed them, most of them like history tells us Isaiah was sawn in two. All of the apostles of the New Testament were brutally martyred except for John, and he got boiled in oil and exiled, so he didn't get off easy either. In the first century, the Emperor Nero would take Christians, cover them in pitch, and then use them as human torches to light his parties, among lots of other grotesque and horrendous things that we don't need to get into this morning. In the first century, when someone named the name of Christ, oftentimes their family would disown them and it would be their own family members persecuting them. And lest lest we think of these things as things in the past or things that happened a long time ago, this is still going on all around the world. Every day. I read an article uh, just last week that in 2023, there's more reported persecution of Christians that than at any other time in human history. Let that sink in. I think for most of us in this room though, we are more likely to experience a a different type of persecution. Um, And that's what Jesus refers to in verse 11. He says, revile and slander. And revile is not a word we hear used In today's vernacular very much, but it simply means to criticize or to insult someone in an abusive fashion, or we could refer to a lesser form of revile as being made fun of. Um, Slander, of course, is when someone says things about someone that are not true. Now, slander is really bad because there's enough bad things you could say about me that are true. I don't need you making stuff up, okay? (laughs) But seriously, slander hurts. Slander cuts deep. When you find out that you've been slandered, that somebody said things about you that are not true, it hurts. And our initial response often is want to jump to our own defense, want to fight. And we just need to leave that in the hands of the Lord. These are the most likely forms of persecution that we're going to experience. We're going to be misunderstood. We're going to be misrepresented. We're going to be spoken evil of. Like Pastor Nate talked about uh, in one of his recent sermons. When you stand up for what God's word says about sex and gender and marriage, People are going to call you a bigot it's going to happen when you when you say that you believe that god created the universe people are going to call you a science denier so you have a, your head in the sand you believe fairy tales you could go through anything people are going to make fun of you people are going to persecute you and we're doing well if it, that's where it ends um another Another persecution um, that I think many of you may already be experiencing, um, and a lot of you probably will, I would call economic persecution. Um, Let me give you an example of that. I have a friend who he got a job with a company and he was in sales and marketing. doing really well, killing it, really successful. And then through his own research came to find out that the products they were selling were not exactly being advertised accurately. And so he went to his boss who was also a professing Christian. And he said, Hey, here's this data that I've seen. I think the way we're marketing these products is unethical. You know what happened to him? His boss said, okay, that's how you feel. Get out. We fired him on the spot. Lost his job for righteousness sake. And I hope it's not, but I can't help, but think that may be a reality for many of you in this room. If you're in public education. If you're in medicine, if you're in anything that the government has its hand in, you may have to choose righteousness over your job. It's a harsh reality we need to face. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, you know what, I've never experienced anything like that. I've never experienced any form of persecution for righteousness sake. And I wanna give you a, an encouraging word of warning this morning. If that's the case for you, that may mean one of two things. One, you may not be a Christian. Or maybe you're a disobedient Christian that lives so much like the world that the world loves you as one of its own. World it looks at you and doesn't see righteousness. They don't e- they don't even know you're a Christian. Those are dangerous places to be. They're very dangerous places to be. But I think. Most of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, when we really consider what it's like to be persecuted, we're not so sure that we're willing to endure persecution. We remain silent when we know we should speak up. We compromise righteousness in order to fit in. That doesn't stop at high school. That follows you right into adulthood. Nobody wants to be ostracized. Nobody wants to be thought of as a a fool or be made fun of. But when we do this, we are demonstrating to the world around us that we value the favor of the world more than we value the blessing of God. We are demonstrating that we fear man more than we fear God. Jesus said in Matthew 10, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He goes on to say later in the same chapter, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. They're weighty statements. The apostle Paul in second Corinthians 11, he was comparing himself to false apostles and he doesn't just point to his pedigree or his ministry success. He points to his persecution and his suffering for Christ as a mark of authenticity as an apostle. And if we are unwilling to be persecuted for Christ's sake, it's an indication that we either don't understand or we don't value the promise of this beatitude. 1 Peter 3 says this, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, Even the martyr's price is small. And that brings us to what is gained. What is the promise of this beatitude? Blessed are the persecuted. This one often gets called the double blessing because he says, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. And then blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake. He's saying the same thing two different ways there. And we we have to know and believe that The blessing of God far outweighs the comforts of this world. The kingdom of heaven belongs to the persecuted. That's what he says. Blessed are the persecuted for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now there are blessings associated with, when we become citizens of the kingdom of heaven, there are blessings associated with that in the here and now, in this life and in the life to come in eternity. Remember Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He landed in jail, but what happened to him? The Lord restored him. He became the prime minister of Egypt and God used him to uh, spare God's people from starvation and extinction. Remember Daniel, Daniel was thrown into a den of lions because he refused to stop worshiping the one true God. And not only was his life spared, but he was restored to his high position as the most valued commissioner of King Darius. And when that happened, King Darius made a declaration. He said, in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever. So there are times where righteousness pays off, if you will, in this life. There are. But as, as John MacArthur also comments, he says, not every believer is rewarded in this life with the things of this life, but every believer is rewarded in this life with the comfort, strength, and joy of his indwelling Lord. He is also blessed with the assurance that no service or sacrifice for the Lord will ever be in vain. Your reward is great in heaven. The heavenly reward, it's eternal life with God. Pastor Nate said in the beginning of this series that God himself is the ultimate blessing of the Beatitudes. So we can lose everything in this life, including life itself. Why? Because we get God and he's enough. He's enough. Your reward is great in heaven. Now Jesus not only expects us oh, to have a willingness to be persecuted, but he also takes it a step further. He says, rejoice and what? Be glad when this happens to us. Now let's be honest, that sounds a little crazy, right? Rejoice and be glad when I'm being persecuted, what? That's what he says, Matthew five twelve: Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And what we see when we look at this is the person that endures persecution with rejoicing and gladness is a person that cherishes Christ and his rewards above everything else in the world. A heart that can rejoice and be glad in persecution is a heart that is set on the things of heaven rather than the things of earth. Like Jim Elliott, a missionary who was martyred for his faith said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. First Peter four. In verse 12 and following says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you what we have to see this morning is that we are in good company when we're being persecuted. We're not only linking arms with the prophets, with the apostles, with church history. We are linking arms with Jesus Christ himself. We are sharing in his suffering. We are identifying with him in his suffering. And the Bible promises when we do that, when we share in his suffering, we will also share in his glory. We will also share in the glory that is to be revealed. And just like we saw in first Peter here, the spirit of God rests upon the persecuted. This ought to bring us more joy than anything the world has to offer. Amen. We're going to close this morning. If the worship team would come and the prayer team, if you have a prayer need this morning, the people um, that are coming from the prayer team would love to meet with you. So in keeping with Pastor Nate's pattern in this series, I want to conclude this morning by highlighting to you how Jesus is the ultimate example of a persecuted peacemaker. Jesus came to the earth to make peace between God and man possible. While we were his enemies, he paid the ultimate price of self-sacrifice to reconcile us back to God. And in so doing, Jesus made reconciliation between us and others possible. Ephesians 2 says that, uh, Jesus is our peace, and he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's made peace between men by reconciling them to God into one body. That's why hostility has no place in the life of a believer. Prejudice has no place in the life of a believer. Partiality has no place in the life of a believer. He's killed it. He killed it when he brought us together in one body. Jesus was reviled. Jesus was slandered throughout his entire ministry. They called him a glutton and a drunkard. They called him a sinner, a Sabbath breaker, a blasphemer. And he was persecuted to the point of death. And in everything, he demonstrated God's attitude by making peace when he was persecuted. Jesus was able to say of those who brutally murdered him, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Apostle Peter summarized it this way. First Peter 2, verse 21 and following, he said, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So we need to respond this morning in two ways. First, we need to worship. You know, worship the risen Christ, the ultimate persecuted peacemaker. Worship him for making peace between God and men and making peace between men possible. But we also need to make a commitment this morning to follow his example, understanding that he alone is the one who has fulfilled these beatitudes. He has earned the blessing of God on our behalf that we await with eager expectation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the peace you've made through the blood of the cross. Thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ. Pray that you would help us, help us to be peacemakers, help us to be peacemakers even in the midst of persecution. Help us to follow the example of Christ. Lord, we we trust and we know that your spirit rests upon us when we do. Jesus' name.